With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Timur, you've been accused of many things. Are yeah. they true? Are they true? Well, it depends on what the accusations are. Well, they're pretty They're pretty extensive. I don't have time to go into them all. Okay, well, let, let me... I, I trust you. We're, yeah. we're friends, so yes. <laughs> Welcome. You've found the portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein. And today we have something that I think is going to be very interesting for many of you. We are happy to have a guest that I've been looking forward to meeting for quite some time, who's been a personal intellectual hero of mine. And he is uh, the Gorder uh, Family Professor of Islamic Studies, a professor of economics, and also a professor of political science, all at Duke University. So, Welcome, Hosh Geldenis, to our esteemed colleague, Dr. Timur Karan. Delighted to be here, Eric. Thanks for the invitation. So the reason that I've been so eager to have you here is that this, this uh, podcast is themed around the idea of escape from a more humdrum existence that is con- starting to, I think, work less and less well for more people. And so we're trying to find ways out of the sort of cognitive traps that we've been uh held within for quite some time. And I first became aware of your work um, when I was searching for an explanation of why the field of economics built such an utterly simplistic model of human preference and belief. And I was led to one book of yours in particular called uh, Private Truths and Public Lies, I hope I have the ordering on that correct. That's private truths, public lies. Yes. Without the end. Okay. (laughs) Private truths, public lies, which brought an entirely new perspective uh, in the field of economics, which is that of preference falsification. I wondered if you would sort of just give us a brief introduction to this theory, and then perhaps I'll say a little bit more about why it's so powerful and also so incredibly dangerous to the field. So... Preference falsification is the act of misrepresenting our wants under perceived social pressures. And it aims deliberately at disguising one's motivations and one's dispositions. Uh, it is very common and sometimes it occurs in very innocent situations. Uh, if I go into somebody's home and they ask me, what do you think of the decor I've selected? I might actually, even though I don't like the decor, it doesn't suit my taste. I might say, to say, oh, it's, it's wonderful uh, and compliment my host's uh, uh, taste. I falsified my preference, but not much harm has come out of it. Uh, I've avoided hurting my, my host's feelings, but preference falsification happens in a very, very wide array of settings. And some of these settings, it leads to terrible consequences. 
In the political arena, people are, and people, whether they're on the left or whether they identify with the, the, with the right or the some, somewhere in between, people routinely falsify their political preferences for fear that they will be skewered if they express exactly what's on their mind, if they say exactly what they want, if they express the ideas, <clears throat> excuse me, that lie under those, those prefer uh, preferences. And, uh, Just to give some examples from our society, immigration is one of these uh, issues. Abortion is another issues where we have a clash of absolutes. You're either pro-choice or pro-life and there's nothing in between. And if you take a position in between and offer a more nuanced opinion that you favor free abortion, let us say in the first trimester, but not later on, you will be accused by both sides. There's very little that you will gain. Uh, and there's a great deal that you may lose. And in today's society, you may lose a lot of friends because the main fault line in American society today is political ideology. There are more people who will object to their son or daughter marrying somebody who holds the wrong, uh, who, who supports the wrong party, has the wrong ideology, than will oppose to their son or daughter marrying somebody of a different ethnic uh, uh, group or a different ethnic or a different religion. So it can lead what, what, Uh, it can happen on issues like this is happening on issues like this is we, we simply don't come to a resolution. Yeah. So I, before um, we started this podcast uh, in the time that we were talking together, I, I sort of made an unfriendly accusation, which is that I think that you uh, have developed a brilliant theory, but that you have not actually even understood its full importance. And that part of this has to do with the oddity that sometimes to see what's so dangerous and what's so powerful, you actually need curators. So I'm hoping to help by curating a little bit of what I've gotten out of, out of your theory and how you've taught me, even though we've never met before this week. Um, one of the things that I think that's fascinating is that we have a democracy that is stitched together through markets. And when you think about the role of economics, it, the free market uh, to, or even a managed market allows us to each individually direct a larger amount of our action without central direction. And so Anything that happens in the economic sphere, like a new theory of preferences, uh, could have absolutely powerful implications because of the role that our understanding of economics plays in underpinning civil society. One of the things I think that's extremely dangerous about your theory, and, and one of the reasons I'm attracted to it, is, is that it is backwards compatible with standard economics. That is... If my private preferences and my public preferences are the same preferences, then without loss of generality, as we're fond of saying in mathematics, everything that you're bringing to the table is just some unnecessary extra um, 
you know, variables because in fact the two are coincident. However, if my public preferences and my private preferences are different, then while I can recover the old theory from your work, I'm now in some new territory in which I've expanded the field uh, to accommodate new phenomena, such as uh, an election that whose result no one sees coming. And we've, we've, broaden the field to accommodate vast inefficiencies that our political system that involves people expressing their political preferences once every four years through a system that involves primaries, uh, uh, nominating conventions and so on, and ultimately an election, that this system ultimately produces an outcome that reflects people's preferences. When you introduce preference falsification into the picture, when you accept it as something significant, and I would suggest that its significance is, is growing, you open up the possibility that our political system can generate outcomes that very few people want that generate very inefficient outcomes. You open up the possibility that because people are not openly expressing what's on their mind, that the system of knowledge development, knowledge production and knowledge development, and therefore solving problems that that gets corrupted. Well, in one of the ways in which I've, I've tried to figure out how to make what you do a little bit more mimetic so that it, more people start to, to appreciate it. One, one of the ways I've tried to talk about it with among friends is that you have developed a theory of the black market in the marketplace of ideas that is underground concepts, underground desires, unmet fears that can't be discussed in the curated market, uh, managed by institutions. Uh, another way of saying it is that this is the economy of silence, uh, or the eco economy of deception. Do those fit? I would prefer economy of deception because people don't say, stay silent. Uh, we, we don't have, you know, in our society on most issues, people don't have the luxury to stay silent when they are in an environment consisting mostly of pro-choice people or mostly of pro-life people. They are asked to take a position. So it's not that some people are speaking and other people are silent. If that were the case, we would know, well, they're, they're 70% of society is silent. They must not agree with either of the two extreme positions, pro-life and, and well, people will say things like, but people actually pretend when they're in a group that is primarily or exclusively pro-choice or pro-life. They sense this. They take that position. That is preference uh, uh, falsification. And in doing that, they also fail to express or choose not to express the reasons why they find an intermediate position more attractive. Sure. And those, all of those reasons get subtracted from public discourse. We have a very distorted public discourse on which uh, that is underlying our whole political system. 
So, I mean, there's so much that's juicy to, to dig into. Um, I think that there, that you, you may be undervaluing some of the aspects of silence where somebody will say, well, look, I, 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 I'm not a very political person. Somebody else might make an admonition, keep your head down, stick to your knitting, uh, stay in your lane. There are all of these ways in which we, we do favor silence, but those of us who have to speak in a professional capacity, who are expected to form opinions on these things. We really don't have the luxury usually of staying silent. Yeah. I, I think I will, I will grant this point that there are many issues on which we consciously avoid putting ourselves in positions where we will have to take a position we, we take ourselves we, out of the game. We take ourselves out of the game, but, and we're, we're successful in doing that in most contexts, but in going through daily life, we find ourselves in situations in social events or in, in, in the workplace where we have to take a position. Everybody's taking a position. There's an issue that is, you're sitting around the table and issue is being, being discussed. And it has to do with workplace uh, uh, policy on, on some issue. And you have to take a position. And uh, you have to sometimes uh, vote. So your point is well taken that there are, there are uh, whole, in any person's life, there, there's, there's a, a pretty broad zone in which you can, you can avoid uh, not taking a position so yeah. let's go back through a little bit of just modern history and talk about the times in which preference falsification, even though people have often not had the terminology for this theory, really came into its own in a way where people were so surprised by a turn of events that they came to understand that people held preferences that were far different than the preferences that had been assumed to be held and relatively, let's say, radical um radically quick shifts in, in that structure. Let me give you an example of, uh, from Eastern Europe, uh, communism, uh, was, remains a highly inefficient social system, inefficient economically, uh, highly repressive also. Uh, it was a puzzle to many people that it survived for decades in Eastern Europe. And for a long time, the dominant view was that uh, what kept communism in place for decades in the Soviet satellites, in the Soviet Union itself, was brute force. And people would give the examples of Prague in 1968 or, uh, the show or Hungary, the, the show trials of, of, uh, of Stalin. This is the kind of thing, the gulag, uh, uh, the people would talk about, uh, you know, refer to Solzhenitsyn's, uh, book. But when, when you actually looked at these societies, there were some of them in which there were, there, there was no, Gulag and the prison uh, population was smaller than the prison population at the time in the United States as a proportion. Czechoslovakia is a good example. So 
there wasn't Czechoslovakia wasn't a place that we associate with show trials. Yes, there was. We think of 1968 when Soviet tanks came uh, uh, rolling in. But even after that, you didn't have major uh, uh, trials. You didn't have uh, huge numbers of people uh, disappearing. So what is it that kept Czechoslovakia communist society? And what kept it a communist society is that people who hated the system pretended to approve of the system and turned against dissidents, the very few dissidents who had the courage to say, this is a system that is not going to last forever. It's an inefficient system. It hasn't brought us freedom. The state hasn't withered away. It's gotten bigger. It's more important in our, in our life. And they would turn against them. What sustained communism all across the Soviet Union and its East European satellites was preference falsification. Now, what this meant was that the system was extremely unstable. People were falsifying their preferences because other people were doing so. I was, even though I I was against communism and you were against uh, communism, we both supported the system because the other was. Now, this is a system where if one of us decides for whatever reason that we're going to call a spade a spade and say, this system doesn't work. I don't like it. I go out in the street and I start demonstrating. A lot of other people are going to follow. So what happened is ultimately the, when some demonstrations began and it happened to be the demonstration started in, in East, East Germany, these, Demonstrations started growing. Every week, more and more people found themselves in themselves the courage to say what they believed and to come out against the regime. The regime itself didn't want to overreact. There were discussions in the Politburo. Some people said, we better crack down right now or this is going to get out of hand. Other people said, Well, if we crack down now and some people die, that can, the negative effects could be greater. Their winter is, is coming pretty soon. It will be harder. It will be, people will be more reluctant to go out in the, in the street. Let's let this pass. Let's not overreact. Before they knew it, the, The Berlin Wall was uh, was down, and that created a, a domino effect. Nobody foresaw that, and it's quite significant that among the people who who missed this were the dissidents, the the East European dissidents, who were the only people, and I include in this all the top experts, CIA experts, the top academics studying Eastern Europe, the only people it. who understood what was holding the system together. Yeah. Václav Havel wrote a book called The Power of the Powerless. And its main message was this society that hates communism holds within it the power to topple it. But even he missed this. Even yeah. he was surprised. 
even he was surprised when Gorbachev came two weeks before the uh, Czechoslovak uh, the revolution, when Gorbachev came to town, a million people came out in Prague to, to greet him. They were enthusiastic. They thought change was coming. A New York Times reporter, Robert Apple, asked. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Asked Václav Havel, is this the revolution that you are predicting? Is Have people discovered that they have the power to topple uh, the regime? And he said, I'm not a dreamer. He said, I'm probably not going to live to see right. this, uh, uh, this happen. So here's a case of a system built on preference falsification that was, that was sustained by preference falsification that suddenly collapses when a few people call it out and then you get the The cascade. Then you get the cascade. So this is one of the things that I want to dig into because um, the cascade effect is really a refinement, uh, as I see it, of the old story of the emperor's new clothes where all it takes is one person, but then it's missing the mechanism. It's like Newton's laws. There's no ability to transmit gravity. It's an instantaneous action at a distance. To my way of thinking, the best way of understanding your theory for most people is to understand a motif that is found throughout American cinema. And the motif has a name, I believe, inside the business, which is called the slow clap, which is that somebody can't take it anymore. And they give an impassioned speech that nobody's expecting that starts speaking to the unmet beliefs of a large group of people, none of whom have understood that there is a lot of support for this in terms of private preferences. That's the first action. Now, if I understand your theory correctly, people have private preferences and public preferences, yeah. but they have some threshold of alternate support in the group that will be necessary for them to update their public preferences towards their private preferences. And then the most important thing is, is that, that crazy speech is followed by some anonymous member of the group who starts the slow clap. And that slow clap becomes oppressive because in that group, that person is saying, we all know that what has just been said reflects the group. And then the slow clap is joined by a third person and that you watch the cascade visually. So the way this is, uh, what you are describing is a cascade that involves uh, a large group of people who have different thresholds. Correct. So you can imagine that the very first people, person in your example who gives an impassioned speech, who's just had enough at some point, something happens 
this person was just boiling with anger against the the regime or the system or the policy, whatever it is, was boiling with anger, but knew, has known all along that there's a huge risk to acting on this. But something happens where that person says, I have just had enough. I, I, I'm willing to take the risk of going to prison for 20 years. I'm going to make this speech. I'm just going to say, I can't live with myself. And there are people in society people on any given issue. There are people on any given issue. And that, and that person on one particular issue might feel that way on other issues might, might not. Then there, there's somebody else who is, also quite impassioned, also boiling with anger, but just a little bit less so. So the person, again, to go to your example, the person who follows the impassioned speech with the slow clap is that next person. The person with the slightly higher threshold, but that f- the person who gave the impassioned speech awakened that person that 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 courage and was just enough to tip that person over the threshold there are other people in the audience who have slightly higher thresholds it takes two people to call a spade a spade say the emperor is is naked say i'm opposed to this uh, this policy that person then jumps in and so what what a cascade is, is a self-reinforcing process where every person who joins the, the movement, who, who changes his or her preference, induces another person, tips another person over his or her threshold. And so the system builds on itself and over a very short time you go from a condition where nobody is opposing the status quo to where everybody is now in opposition and it becomes now it can become dangerous to support the status quo ante. And this is actually something, if we go back for a moment to the East European example, I spoke of uh, the famous New York Times uh, reporter Robert Apple, well, two weeks after uh, the Czechoslovak revolution, the New York Times decided they had written about dissidents for two weeks, they had written Lots of stories about right. dissidents and about all these people who said, "Oh, it was so bad living living a lie," and uh, I'm so now now we now we're now we're going to start living in truth and so on. It occurred to somebody in the New York Times editorial board, you know, this is a society that was run by communists. There's lots of people who are members of the communist uh, uh, party. We should do a story about them. What's happening to them? You know, they they have been in power for half a century and they've suddenly overnight they've been pushed out of of power uh, let's send our best reporter to uh, back to the region to interview them so uh, the robert apple lands in in prague and he he, he starts uh, looking for communists and of course he finds lots of people who have held communist party 
membership, but they say, oh, I'm not a communist. I never was a, a communist. I was, uh, I was falsifying my uh, preferences. I had no choice. I have, I have children. I had to, you know, put them through school. I wanted to keep my uh, job. I'm not a uh, communist. And he, and he, he wrote back, uh, uh, a famous, uh, article in the, uh, New York Times said, I can't, I, I could not find a communist anywhere. So what, of, of course, this is, this is not preference falsification in reverse because there are people who were benefiting handsomely from the system. So it's an overshoot. This is an overshoot. This is an overshoot now. And now in Czechoslovakia, you did not have a witch hunt against the supporters of the old regime. Of course, the members of the old Politburo were all, uh, or most of them were sidelined. The, the two or three of them managed to repackage them as social Democrats, uh, repackage themselves as social uh, uh, Democrats, and continued in in politics. But most of the people were, were sidelined. There wasn't a witch hunt, but there were other countries in which there was uh, a witch hunt. So it was very, it was, and, and of course, Czechoslovaks didn't know what was going to happen. There was always a danger that uh, uh, that uh, the new regime would go after the old uh, uh, communists and try to punish them and punish people who ran the jails and uh, uh, and had important positions in the uh, in the communist party. Uh, but. Uh, uh, but it was, uh, so because there was a possibility of uh, this danger, now they pretended that they were all, uh, all along, they were, they were lying. So, uh, events, massive events that changed the course of history, which were unpredicted after the fact, they become, uh, one looks at them and uh, one finds it impossible not to understand why they happened. We have, they're overdetermined. Right. We have tremendous amount of data showing to why, showing why the system had to collapse. Yet in reality, to go back to your example, if that one person hadn't made the impassioned speech, this thing could have gone on for more years. Well, but let, let, let's play with this a little bit. One of the things that I find so fascinating about the theory is it also sort of starts to explain how in a society where people's private and pr public preferences are somewhat aligned, they can go out of alignment very quickly. So I don't know if you've seen the video, for example, of Saddam Hussein coming to power at a bath party meeting uh, in Iraq, which is fascinating. I'm not sure. I have seen some videos of Saddam Hussein in bath party meetings. I'm, I'm not sure I saw this. You, you'd remember so it. So maybe, maybe you. Let just, me describe uh, it for you yeah, because you'll see yeah, the mechanism yeah. in the opposite direction. Yes. Um, so he's sitting there on stage smoking a cigar and he's videoing himself, I think, knowing what comes next. He says, hey, we've got a special guest today. And a man who I don't know exactly who he was stands up and starts speaking and saying, I have plotted against Saddam and I have co-conspirators in the audience and I'm going to name them now. Well, you see terror take over this auditorium because there's also cameras, if I recall correctly, on stage filming the people. And these names get read and these people are being led out 
And then the preference falsification sets in and you start seeing the private preferences suppressed and the public preferences going into nonsense territory. And people are saying, long live our brother Saddam. He is the one because they realize that their life is on the line. And according to legend, and I don't know whether this is exactly true, those who are left at the end uh, are given sidearms to execute those who have been let out to make them complicit in the crime to freeze in the preference falsification. Or if you like, people are now preferring to, uh, to save their lives rather than preferring to explore their politics. So do we, I mean, I'm just trying. To- I hadn't seen this video. I've heard just as a little uh, footnote here that uh, in, course, in North Korea, the Kims have used the same sort of thing where they actually will say that they're going to name some people in the audience. The latest one where uh, was where a relative right. of Kim Jong-un was uh, might have been an uncle, uncle or, or something who was actually led out. This was the same sort of thing that happened in that case. I don't think it was somebody from the audience who pulled the trigger, but uh, everybody could hear a shot go. He was, he was obviously murdered. Everybody could hear that this was instantaneous. If you did, if, if, if Kim decided you had betrayed him, you would be put to death. Well, this is what I, I have a a pet project of mine, which I don't think I've ever advanced sufficiently is what I term um, the analysis of message violence, that there's certain violence that is committed theatrically as an instrument of transmission to induce preference falsification. So this is used by the cartels in uh, Mexico. This used to great effect by the Kims. It was used by Saddam Hussein, um, and with message violence, the idea is to create something so horrific beyond what is necessary to silence someone through murder and death to communicate to others the instant necessity of beginning to falsify their preferences so that a, it's a leveraging effect where a small amount of violence, uh, results in the maximum amount of preference falsification. Yes, this does happen, and there are plenty of examples we can give. We can go back to the show trials of uh, the Soviet Union, where every single member, where Stalin got rid of every single member of Lenin's uh, Politburo, all the heroes of the October Revolution and the building of the uh, Soviet Union. One by one, he got rid of them through, uh, through show trials. And the fact that such heroes could be executed in such humiliating ways sent, of course, a message to the entire society that, that if this happens to them, this can happen to, this can happen to anyone. But I would want to emphasize that preference falsification, even massive preference falsification can occur even without such theatrics. And if we come back to our own society, jumping from the Soviet Union and Iraq to the United States today, there are many issues on which we do not talk to each other honestly, on which there's a great deal of polarization and people and, and expressing nuances can get you in great, uh, great trouble. And we cannot point to a single event 
we went to many smaller events, but no single event that has the theatrics of Saddam's uh, Saddam's executions or with what the Kims are doing. Well, and I'm so glad that we're making this transition because uh, as interesting as the historical examples are and the those that are particularly bloody, the best application of this theory, in my opinion, only comes from when we realize that violence uh, can be moved from the physical sphere to the reputational and the economic sphere. So if you think about your reputation as part of what Richard Dawkins might have called our extended phenotype, it's something that you carry around with you that is necessary for, let's say, employment. Um, we now worry about reputational violence, which can be exacted theatrically, for example, through social media. So the question of what we can say, what we can discuss, what we can explore um, has a similar character. If I take the James Damore situation at Google, this was a particularly, you know, whether or not you thought his memo was brilliant or a little bit tone deaf, it certainly wasn't an insane exploration uh, of misogyny. It was some exploration of uh, differences um, between men and women at the level of big five personality inventories. The idea being that success or failure might have a lot more to do with one's big five let's say, hedonic decomposition of our personalities rather than our actual gender. And then if males and females had different hedonic profiles at the level of big five personality inventory traits, that could explain some of the imbalances. And he was actually, to my mind, talking about the fact that if you wanted to have a more equal uh, society of engineers, there are things that you might explore to try to um, actually better utilize uh, women in the workplace. Now, whether or not you buy into that, or it, it certainly didn't seem like an insane thing to suggest. And yet the reputational violence that was exacted on somebody who was told to attend a seminar and asked for feedback uh, seemed to me to be of, of a piece with this kind of uh, message violence, but not at a physical level, at a reputational level. Do you think that there's some parallel there? Yes, I, I think the reputational violence can do enormous harm in, in the society. Not only can it, can it affect your uh, job prospects, your uh, prospects for promotion and the company that you're working for, you can lose a lot of friends. It can affect your prospects in the marriage market. 50 years ago, when uh, people were asked, Americans uh, were asked whether uh, they would mind whether their daughter or son married somebody of the opposite party, uh, about 20% said that it would make any difference to them. By contrast, more than half of Americans said that if their son or daughter married somebody of the, of an opposite, of a different ethnic group or of a different religion, this would matter to them. And many people said they would not accept the, person from a different religion, different ethnic group, different race into their, their family. Those numbers have come way down over the years. By contrast, 
the numbers regarding ideological differences and party affiliation have gone uh, way up today. So this, so being attacked, coming back to reputational violence, being pigeonholed as a radical Republican or even as a Republican or being pigeonholed implied radical is implied for many people or same on the Democrat or being pigeonholed as a Democrat, even, even now you're a radical, not even, not even, not even a progressive Democrat, just to, to many people, the all Democrats are the same, whether, you know, the nuances between well, the, 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 were the progressives right. and the more what we call the many of us would call more moderate uh, Democrats. There's no such distinctions. They're all on the wrong side. And there are people who do not want to befriend them, who would be completely against their son or daughter marrying a Democrat or Republican, depending on who they are. And you can see. Why? At, at the Thanksgiving table, the tensions would be enormous because it would bring them to, to, to bring Democrats and Republicans together, even moderate Democrats and Republicans together these days, let alone people on the, on the right side of the Republican Party with the uh, progressive uh, uh, Democrats is, is, uh, a recipe for uh, complete disagreement for opening up issues that will expose hatreds uh, because the two sides no longer talk to each other, because no one accepts the possibility, the viability of a middle of some kind of compromise. People don't know how to talk to each other. People don't know where their differences begin and where they might actually have some room for, for compromise. And so there's a reason why these days people feel that if they are pigeonholed, if they say something that then allows others to put them into one of these pigeonholes, political, ideological pigeonholes, that their life will be ruined. And so this is, let's go back now to the East European uh, situation. This is similar to what the dissidents faced in Czechoslovakia. Yes. Dissidents who didn't distance like Václav Havel, who did spend small, short periods in, in and out, out of prison, but mostly he was allowed to be a dissident playwright, but he got enormous amount of hate mail. Most people, even people whom he knew from earlier times in his life, would not say hello to him for fear that the friendship would imply that they sympathized with his ideas. They, they, they crossed to the other side of the road if they saw him coming just so that they wouldn't have to confront him. This, so his, his social circle got, got smaller. The number of people he could go to ask for, for help diminished. So all of this was all of these inconveniences. This is, happening right now in the United States. 
it means that if 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 you cannot live with somebody of the other party as a close relative of yours if you cannot talk to the other side because you think they're just beyond the the pale they're subhuman their ideas just are are inhumane they're just uh th- th- there's no way you can even begin to consider their validity or consider them is worth discussing as part of a, a part of a conversation you're certainly not going to see them as people you can go to in a time of trouble that is why you would rather live in a neighborhood consisting if you're a republican where everybody's republican and if you're a democrat where everybody's a, a democrat because you like in in a time of need and time of emergency you'd like to be able to go to your neighbors you'd like to, you'd like to have neighbors with whom you can have pleasant chats when you meet them in the street when you're walking your dog and you meet them in in the street and not have to ignore them and see them as evil people well so this is I mean, it's fascinating to me. Uh, so many different ways to go here. I'm trying to figure out which, what the best uh, line through is. One thing that I'm fascinated by, maybe we'll come back to this, is what is the force that makes the middle so difficult to hold, that pushes more and more people to towards either being sort of um, what I've termed troglodytes or dupes. Uh, it makes it very difficult to... to um, I guess what my model is that you have an A-frame roof. As the A-frame roof gets more and more peaked, there are a fewer number of fiddlers who can stay on the A-frame roof without falling over to the left or to the right. And so that right now, uh, I think that the skill level needed to inhabit a sensible position is priced out of almost all of our abilities. I mean, this is... if what, what leads you from a position where 50 years ago, where we had, again, people on the extremes, we had people who favored segregation, people who favored desegregation. Uh, uh, we had, we had serious disagreements before, but there were many people in society who held positions, had strong opinions, but also felt that the people on the other side were humans, were well-meaning, right, and could be parties to a conversation, right. and you could compromise with them. So when you picked up the New York Times after some vote in Congress, 50 years ago, there would be a list of Democrats voting for, Democrats voting against, Republicans voting for, Republicans voting against. And there were lots of people in all four of those groups, and all four of those groups were considered legitimate. Right. And even the people who had voted yes it considered the people who had voted no in their party. They considered them as legitimate senators or legitimate Congress uh, uh, people, and they 
on some other bill, they cooperated uh, uh, with them. So this was, and of course, you just mentioned a skill set. There was a skill set that went with that. The skill set was that you could, you and I could disagree on issue A. Yeah. And, 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 debate for days and days and days and why your i could say that your thing is going to lead to disaster along this front and and you could say the the same thing about me at the same at the end of the day one of us would win the bill would either pass or or lose or there would be this would go into some conference we'd have some kind of compromise right. you and i would accept that compromise as legitimate and so we would we develop the skills As we did this, we developed the skills of compromise. The whole political system developed this. And society saw this and accepted the people, Republicans and Democrats, as both legitimate, representing legitimate sides of legitimate positions on issues subject to Screaming. We gradually have moved. It's a cascade right. that has moved us gradually, that has expanded the area, an area of absolutes, positions on which we have abs- issues on which we have absolute positions and that are not subject to discussion. And what's happening, what has happened in the last uh, few decades is that the number of such issues has grown. As this has happened, we have the, the number of issues on which we no longer discuss. We just have absolute positions. We're pro-choice, pro-life. We don't discuss. We don't have conferences where we discuss what kind of bringing people from both sides well, and saying, what kind of compromise can we... Well, there's compromise at a political level, but I think there's also a question about the intellectual basis of our conversation. So let's just take pro-life and and pro-choice. Yes. I I, I talk about sometimes dining a la carte intellectually, where I can't get my needs met in a low-resolution world any place, and so I, I sort of pick and choose which bits of things I need. And... I sort of think of this as political flatland that people are trapped in pro-life versus pro-choice. And my real position is a plague on both your houses. I'm not pro-choice to the extent that I'm willing to call a child four minutes before its birth fetal tissue, nor am I pro-life to the extent that I'm going to call a blastosphere a baby. Um, Both of those seem patently insane to me. And nowhere do I get to discuss Carnegie stages and embryonic development, which would be sort of a kind of more scientific approach to what quality of life is it that we're trying to preserve. And yet I caucus, if you will, with the pro-choice community, not because I hold the idea that it's simply a woman's right to choose, because obviously there's something else that's going on inside of women. There's the whole miracle of, of, of uh, gestation and reproduction. Um, but if people see that I caucus pro-choice, then they say, okay, you're willing to sit with somebody who's willing to terminate a third trimester pregnancy frivolously because they're ideologically committed to it. Ergo, you're evil. Ergo, we can no longer be friends. And my key point is, look, I'll drop these people in a heartbeat 
if you give me some nuanced room in which to maneuver, let's talk about the neural tube formation. Let's talk about what we think of as life. Is it the emotional connection to seeing something one recognizes as human? Is it the quality of, of the of the brain? Is it something mystical and ineffable? Are you coming from a religious tradition? The key point is to make it impossible to have a discussion. And you know, I remember being beaten up on a picket line and not picket line. We were, there was a, a group that was picketing a, uh, an abortion clinic and I was demonstrating for the right to keep it open. And I got beat up in Rhode Island on camera. And after this incident, I think I had a chance to, to talk to the person I thought who hit me with a, a, a picket sign. And it turned out that we could come to, we, we couldn't get all the way there, but there was at least a partial rapprochement where we could say, well, I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from. Maybe we can, we, we can understand that you're, we're both motivated um, by the best interests that we, as we perceive them, that has gone away in large measure because what we've taken, or at least this is my understanding as our institutional media and our sense-making apparatus, and they have become complicit uh, in making the center that, that is the sensible and analytic center absolutely uninhabitable. Yes. Does that match? I think this has happened, and, and I think this has happened in a growing range, on a growing range of, of issues, which is why now we go back to New York Times lists of who and which party voted which way, sometimes that list doesn't appear because it's simply a party, they say, is just a party line vote. And this is a reflection of, of society. That, And it's not that within the Republican Party or within the Democratic Party, you don't have people on whatever the issue is. You don't have people in in the middle. But that if they take, if they bring up the nuances, if they try to bring the conversation a little bit toward a compromise, they will get skewered by the people, by their own people. On the or other, the other side. Right. And, and the other side will not come to their defense. And in fact, if the other side does come to their defense, that's a terrible signal uh, uh, for them and they'll be skewered by their own side. Well, what concerns me here, though, is, is that we are dependent on people of integrity who risked everything when it was least popular to do it okay. so that we, we can sort of hold these people in reserve so when the madness becomes too great, we can turn to them. Let me just take a couple of examples that matter to me, one of which uh, was the Patriot Act. And then when the Patriot Act was voted in in the wake of 9-11 and there was this sort of mob hysteria to do something because something very significant had happened to us, only one person, only one senator voted against it. And that was Russ Feingold. And so I don't have a clear memory of the other names in the Senate at that time, but I will always remember Russ Feingold for the courage to stand alone. A different sort of uh, version of that, uh, I think about as Catherine Hepburn, uh, who is the sort of the most love of all all Hollywood actresses. I think she had four Academy Awards that she used as doorstops for her bathrooms um, because she didn't seem to give a wit what other people uh, thought of her. And she went and did, uh, if I recall correctly, you know, Connecticut Community Theater during the McCarthy era 
because she was just going to wait out the stupidity, the excess and the idiocy of the movement. Whereas a Humphrey Bogart who uh, organized uh, an artist's push to fight back against this was immediately cowed by an article in Filmfare magazine, if, if I recall correctly. Uh, he said, well, sorry, he, he had to write an article saying, hey, you, you know, don't call me red. I'll, you know, I'll never do that again. And the great Humphrey Bogart, the tough guy of movies, crumbled under this pressure, whereas Catherine Hepburn, his co-star, uh, you know, sort of stood tall and waited it out. Do we have these hyper individuals, these incredibly disagreeable people in the sense of the agreeable um, component of the big five personality inventory who, where we know who they are and we know to whom we can look in times of crisis? Well, on, on particular issues, you will find people who write books that advocate a middle position that identify all the nuances that portray both sides as having legitimate goals, they don't necessarily get attention. So they, they write a book, whether, whether the issue is abortion or immigration, it takes some kind of middle position. It doesn't get the play in the media right. that it, that a book that takes a very strong position, a very absolutist position does. So, uh, so yes, they're due on any, on any given issue. There are some, some people who, uh, you, you can find people who are trying to start a dialogue. You can find here or there little associations, little nonprofit organizations that are trying to start a dialogue doing something, but they just don't, that's not where the, uh, the, what the media pays, pays attention to. So effectively, they don't exist. And the, the groups that, Increasingly, the groups that get attention are the groups that pigeonhole people into one side. You're either for us or you're against us. And the two sides, the two extremes, both of whom are playing this game of you're, you're with us or against us, they're actually reinforcing each other. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're agreed. They're completely agreed on that. Yeah. that. There is no middle position. And having a middle position and having the media pay attention to the people in the middle would hurt them both. Yeah, I don't think so it's they, the middle. I mean, I really think, and for those of you yeah, who are yeah. watching rather than listening, I think that there's this very flat, low-dimensional plane where these positions live. And that what we're calling the middle is not the thing between these. It's in a higher-dimensional space that combines these crappy, low-resolution, moronic positions, and it projects to the middle, but it isn't the middle. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are many more dimensions that these, these it's simply, that these simple position, positions hide. No, right. I, I'm, I completely agree with that. And, and the middle is, is often... Uh, is more complex, involves many more dimensions. And these dimensions, uh, to go back now to these extreme uh, groups, they don't want these dimensions to be brought into the uh, picture. So for the 
pro-life group, the issue is, are you going to terminate the life or not? Right. And for the pro-choice group is, do you respect the woman's right to choose? And so each one of them, for each one of them, it's just a one-dimensional thing. There's a yes, no answer. Right. There's a yes, no answer. And there's no bring in some other dimension is it immediately gets you in trouble. So I want to talk about the specific weirdness of economic theory. Yes. Um, now I claim to be an economist. I've never taken a class in economics. And partially the reason for that is that I developed a theory with my wife about gauge theoretic economics. And I always thought that if we could get attacked and somebody could say, well, you're not really an economist, uh, I'd get a chance to defend myself uh, because it dealt with another aspect. There, there are the great adjustments to preference theory. Preference falsification is yours. Yeah. Uh, gauge theoretic changing preferences is ours. Paul Samuelson had one about incoherent preferences that was uh, he buried in his Nobel uh, acceptance speech, which has received very little play and almost economics. nothing. He, yes. he was the one who pointed it, yeah. pointed me to it saying, you know, this idea that we don't actually even have preferences is something I always thought was important. He saw it as the lack of integrability of tangent planes to create indifferent surfaces. If for, for those of you geeks following at home um, and all of these theories about what's wrong with our preferences, uh, George Soros has one about beliefs with reflexivity, have been really effectively kept out of the mainstream of economic theory. And I find it, I view economic theory as a little bit like, it's not quite as totalitarian as North Korea, but it's very similar to certain places in Eastern Europe where there's that which you can explore freely and that which you can't talk about, or at least it was this way until recently. Now, I look at the moment where I think you had your kind of uh, Saddam Hussein moment about what we can and can't discuss, and I trace it in part, it's just funny to even think of it in these terms, to Becker and Stigler's paper called uh, De Gustibus Non Est Disputandum, and in it, they harden the theory of fixed preferences to um, a dogma by comparing preferences to the Rocky Mountains. And they said, on, on our interpretation, uh, there's an alternate view of why we can't discuss tastes. And that's because like the Rocky Mountains, they are unchanging over time and the same to all men. And, you know, my jaw dropped as an outsider because I hadn't been indoctrinated when I read this. And I thought that is the single craziest idiotic thing that could be said about human beings and their beliefs and preferences. And yet somehow it became a famous paper as opposed to being laughed out of the field. Well, there was, here's again, an example of a theory uh, that is foundational to a discipline that gets falsified. I, I think his first name is Richard, Richard Hernstein. You would, does the name ring a bell? Sure. Uh, the, the Harvard was Richard or Robert. Can't Rich, remember. But anyway, Hernstein, he developed a, a, a theory, uh, that explained a phenomenon that, uh, that Becker swept under the rug, which is that an addict, a heroin addict's 
preferences. Well, those hyperbolic discounts. Do change through hyperbolic discounting. So uh, 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 there are many addicts who, after they've taken their fix, want to, they, they understand now that the panic attack has gone away and they understand that this heroin addiction is ruining their life. And they very sincerely want to give it up. They very sincerely want not to take more heroin. Right. But a few hours pass and they need their body starts. Jonesing. They start craving heroin again. They need a new fix and they get to the point where their preferences change to let me have one more. I'll quit afterwards and I'll quit afterwards. I am prepared to quit now. A few hours ago, they were prepared to quit immediately. Now they're willing to quit, but after I get my next fix and this thing can go on again, again. So you have intertemporally inconsistent preferences. So this is another problem with the, uh, with the economics uh, discipline, but economics is not, uh, immune to the forces that we've been talking about. Well, there is preference falsification in the economics discipline. There are certain fundamentals of the discipline. And if you challenge them, as a young person, you're never going to get a job. Right. And if you, and if you challenge them before you get tenure, you're not going to get a job. But if you develop a reputation to get tenure, you have to develop a certain reputation. And that has involved adhering to the conventions of the discipline Theoretically, you could, after you got tenure, you could switch, but the costs then are huge because you've developed a certain, there's a lot of reputational capital you well, have. But, and we're watching a lot of prominent economists uh, sort of change their position without announcing that they used to be, in effect, working for a nonsensical theory or at least quieting themselves. Yeah. I mean, I was astounded by Paul Krugman's um column or maybe as a blog post called a protectionist moment where he starts talking about the scam uh, of the elites forever freer trade where I associated that with sort of the intellectual force of Jagdish Bhagavati and and some of these theorists who clearly were sort of pursuing a political position um, where, you know, in, in the case of like free trade uh, there, there are two separate Phenomena. You can say that something would Pareto improve a society if everyone is made uh, uh, either as well off as they are today or better off. And then there's this other uh, kind of more technical version of this called Caldor Hicks improvement, which is that if we were to tax winners to pay losers, then everyone would be Pareto improved. And I've <clears throat> noticed this very interesting thing about economists 
where they have two voices. They have the voice that they have to use in the seminar room because there's nowhere to hide from the fact that a lot of these public pronouncements are absolute nonsense. And then the claim is, is that, oh, well, when we're in our seminar voice, and then maybe this was Danny Roderick's phraseology, I can't remember uh, whose it was, but then when we speak publicly, we're allowed to say something that is actually different. It's not the same thing in two different voices. It's an idea that there's an exoteric and an esoteric way of expression, uh, which is a sort of Straussian theory. And the esoteric is reserved for one's colleagues, but we're actually allowed to lie to the public to um, help the fortunes of the politicians we favor when we're speaking publicly, what the hell is going on? So there, 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 there's some people who've uh, achieved a certain stature in, in the profession and, uh, yet they feel there's certain things that are wrong about the, uh, the profession or that they can't say within the profession. They develop a second persona, which is their op-ed persona. Policy entrepreneurs. And they're, they're, they're policy entrepreneurs. And as public intellectuals, they're much more critical of the discipline than they are within the discipline. Or they have decided that there really isn't, uh, possibility of changing the uh, the discipline, but there are certain points that have to be made and they're going to make them anyway, and they're going to make them in a much less technical way. And there's, there's a, a third, a charitable interpretation. I think this does apply to some of my colleagues, I would say. They believe that the the, the core principles of economics, even if they're not true, even if they don't give you a reflection of the real economy, they lead to useful, correct thinking thinking that they're very useful for disciplining your way of thinking, uh, thinking as an economist, and that they represent, uh, they give you a good base model which you can tweak right. to uh, to uh, bring in reality. So uh, I have had some people say to some people who for years did not take my work on preference of qualification seriously, who have now come to the position that this is a useful extension of economics. And they've said, you know, you did use standard economic tools of utility maximization in order to get to this point. And there is a point. That's why you're so dangerous. There is a a point to that. Yeah, but there's a point to that. But the problem is, is that that's why it's actually intellectual kryptonite. So because your theory can be accommodated within the standard theory. Yes. The question is, well, at least a version of it, a version of it. Yeah. Well, I, I think I could do a pretty decent job of, of shoehorning it into the sort of Samuelson neoclassical perspective. Um, the problem is it's a ready made upgrade to the existing theory in which nothing is lost, but new degrees of freedom are gained. And that could have an absolutely unpredictable effect on the entire field because it's at the level of the substrate. But the, the, the big danger is that 
so many propositions evolving efficiency that if you let the system and reveal you let the, and and the, the the principle of revealed preferences <laughs> that that uh, that actions reveal people's people's preferences that goes out the uh, the window and many efficient propositions that if, that if you allow people to uh to uh interact with each other uh you're going to get efficient political uh, solutions. You're going to get efficient, uh, solutions in, in the market. Uh, my way of thinking leads you to multiple equilibria and one equilibrium can be preferable to another. So this is one of the great dangers for economists as high priests, which is that if there are multiple ways in which a market can evolve, Therefore, you can't say that the market finds the optimum because you can't say which of these things actually was the optimum. And there's a danger to political economy, which is that uh, the political system, what the political system generates is not whether you have elections or not and whether you have a secret ballot or not is, is not necessarily efficient. Because if you in a system where people are not cannot speak freely, many ideas are stuck on the ground. They're not being expressed. People are, when people are going through the primary process, they're not thinking of all the options. They're not thinking of all the dimensions. They're thinking in a, in a, in a single uh, dimension. And so they're not coming up with the, with candidates who hold the best positions, whatever your values are, or a set of coherence is is something we haven't talked about is the coherence of various policies. One of the things that can get you in great trouble is if you say within the Republican party or the democratic party, look, this policy on this policy, I'm with you on this other policy, I'm also with you. And on this other third policy, I'm also with you. But the three policies, you cannot put them, you can't, you, we, we don't have the resources to accomplish all of Drug interactions what are your, between ideas. What are your, what, what are your, and some of these policies undermine others. These Absolutely. are not necessarily, these are not that's consistent with uh, one another. So in the, uh, with these, these parties are coalitions. These coalitions have certain objectives. Right. They are, they are deliberately keeping quiet about the contradictions. Well, I think that um, there's among some, these, among these, I think there's some contradictions that we legitimately, even lies. I, I talk about load bearing fictions. Yes. We have to have some number of load bearing fictions in any society because you can't actually just do everything uh, in broad daylight and hope that every uh, everything that we want can be harmonized. Some people are going to have to accept that there are trade offs um, 
who can't intellectually accept that there are trade-offs and they will require load-bearing fictions. For example, we do, con- we do convict innocent people using our system of justice and there's nothing magical about 12 people on a jury being able to decide what actually happened. But if we don't have some kind of mysticism around the wisdom of a jury of our peers, we won't be able to mete out almost any justice at all. So I don't think that we can hope for a sort of a uh, child's uh, vision of an honest society. But what I find really impressive is the rent seeking aspect of keeping it so expensive to investigate something that it's impossible. So you talked about a system of selective pressures where if you raise certain questions, you won't be employed. And therefore through survivor directed survivor bias, there's nobody at the top of a profession who will speak about something openly and in public. One of the things I've been curious about it, my wife has a concept that she's uh, talked about called economics squared, the econ economics of economists. So economists are famous for training their lens on everyone else except for themselves. They'll talk about what are the uh, economics of a physician uh, in trying to figure out how to allocate scarce organs, very upsetting things. And the, the culture of economics, for those who don't know, is that economists don't blink when they talk about things that are incredibly upsetting. That this is, they're part of a technocratic class who, who considers emotions to be beneath them. The one place that I can find where they cannot actually have an honest conversation in general is if you say, let's talk about the e- economics of being a macroeconomist. You know, if you're so good at understanding the economy, you should be able to trade in a market which is relatively complete because there are instruments of every kind to yeah. place any bet. Why are you asking for a grant? Because obviously, if you're any good, you should be uh, you should be rich, not because if you're so smart, why aren't you rich works in general? But you happen to be concerned about the one thing where that would be the proof of concept. Can economics squared be born? Well, this is I mean asking i cannot imagine uh being in a department meeting where somebody asks this question and says why don't we base our hiring on of say macroeconomists on how well they've done in a market or i i i i think they would be immediately left out i don't think it would ever make make it onto the agenda uh i think the institutional pressures against uh applying such a criteria are t- too great because economists also believe most academic economists that they have come into an institution where the primary goal is seeking the truth they've given up possibly more lucrative uh, uh, careers and they should not be therefore judged on the basis of how well they do uh Well, I'm not saying all day trading. I mean, you could ask the question, for example, does being an expert witness as an economist for one side or the other influence 
uh, the objectivity of your judgment. You could ask the question, um, does the prestige of being invited to Jackson's Hole uh, affect uh, the quality of uh, discussion? Um, because people don't want to be um, excommunicated from the priestly class. You could ask the question of whether or not um, the secret Harvard jobs market meeting, which is a particular problem for me, uh, actually serves the interests of economics or serves the interests of the higher ups in the uh in the profession, uh, in the profession, by being a direct interference in the free trade of ideas, all of the really fun questions that econo- economists would ask in a heartbeat about anyone else, they refuse to ask about themselves. So it's quite a bit more pointed than just asking for trading prowess among macroeconomists. You've the profession, and this isn't against you. The profession has trained its magnifying glass on everyone else. When do we start doing the economics of economists? You know, again, I think there are a few people here and there who who publish in journals that very few people read who have done this, this sort of thing. There have been studies of the economics profession, Mirowski, Philip Mirowski, more heat than light, uh, more heat than light. I think might be when he, he, he has done some work along, uh, uh, these lines, uh, like these economics has failed physics. Yeah. But the people doing this are not people at the top of the profession. As perceived. As, as perceived, as perceived by the departments that get, take the first picks when the junior job market opens are considered in the rankings in the U.S. News World Report rankings are considered the top departments to get a PhD from and so on based on, on that ranking people who are at the top are not among those asking uh, the question. So again, as with other issues, uh, which were very polarized other issues on which, uh, there are, taboos, right. areas that que- questions that involve or that raise questions that nobody can really, uh, or that bring to mind questions that nobody can really ask, at least in polite, uh, polite company, uh, as in, in those cases here, the questions, the contradictions you're raising have been noticed there are people who have written, they just don't get attention. They don't, again, well, but, if, but to me, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's like saying, um, you know, who is the greater wrestler, uh, gorgeous George who wrestled in part of the professional wrestling arena where everything is fixed or Khabib Nurmagomedov who wrestled inside of the UFC, who's an unbelievable grappler. Well, I don't think that, uh, Nurmagomedov has ever achieved what has been achieved inside of the WWE. When everything's scripted, you can do things that are so much more fantastic than anybody outside. And yet what we've been trying to do in part is to 
ask the question, why can't we smuggle uh, legitimate economic kryptonite into the economics profession so that it can grow uh, into a real field. If I think about the favorite example is imagine that you've got alchemy and chemistry in the same department, or you've yeah. got astrology and astronomy in the same department. Yeah. The great opportunity is to get rid of the astrologists and get rid of the alchemists, right? Because it's not that all of economics is nonsense, but so many of the perceived top players in the field are actually acting as professional wrestlers that it's time for the revolution that I would imagine um, your theory actually predicts it's so ripe. And so many of us uh, who are mathematically inclined look at the at kind of the history of mathematical intimidation. And when you think this is mathematically intimidating, you guys aren't even that good at math. You know, this this may actually happen through the young generation. And it might actually take a couple of generations. One huge change that has happened in the economics profession Data. since, exactly, since Becker and Stigler wrote the Gustavus Nonis Disputandum. Yeah. That was, I believe, 1977. Yeah. Since they wrote that, the most prestigious field within economics, which used to be economic theory, has lost prestige. The best economists now go into data-heavy area, and they are driven by empirics, and often the theory follows the empirical work that they do, if there's a theory at all in you know, the, sometimes with like the, deep learning, you don't yeah. even know what the theory is. You don't even know what the theory is. And they, they start with so much data that they, they just start analyzing it from some, some corner of the, the issue and then right. hope, hope to come to. And that leads and the very, the very best of those works then generate new, uh, theories. So we're now the empirical parts of the profession are driving the theoretical, uh, yeah, that's and the theory okay. and the theory and the theory, the, the old theorists who were trained as theorists never to touch and to look down on people who, uh, worked with, with, uh, data, looked down on, uh, on them. Many of them are retiring. They are being replaced by theorists who are, uh, who are getting accustomed to operating in departments where the big wigs are the data cowboys are the data cow- cowboys. Yeah. And this is going to have some effect on the theory because the empiricists that I talk to in the economics profession now consider a lot of the theory a waste of time, a lot of it highly uh, uh, highly misleading. Yes. Some of it far too abstract. Uh, and, uh, and irrelevant and that the, that the theory taught to, uh, the, 
first year graduate students and even going before that to undergraduates and, and master students that this has to change. Nobody yet, though, has come up with the equivalent of Paul Samuelson's first edition of economics. Well, this is where he, where he wrote the, where, where we here's came a framework, up with, a, an extensible up, framework for which it, almost any question uh, that can be posed can be posed within the framework within the framework and and it was and it was a and and within a few years all major departments were using either Paul Samuelson's textbook right. or textbooks written according to the same template yeah. following you know basically offering the same thing at a somewhat higher level somewhat lower uh, uh lower level but basically and that is that has come down to the uh the present there have been a few attempts to bring in behavioral economics for example their their uh, textbooks that are, are not quite popular people uh, like bob frank uh, daniel uh, Kahneman uh, have, uh, of course, uh, uh, introduced uh, uh, new ideas about uh, the concerning behavior and how people how people think, and there have been attempts to bring some of these uh, ideas into textbooks, but uh, they they don't define the mainstream yet. Well, this is. This is the thing that I think people don't realize about economics, which is I could make a decent argument that our two greatest theories, our two greatest intellectual theories that we've ever come up with would be um, Darwinian selection in the, in the realm of biology and uh, which I think has flaws and what I would call geometric dynamics, which covers both the modern understanding of the standard model and general relativity. And what's weird is, is that economics, if you think about it, is a decision um, to make a continuation of selection by other means, which is to come up with an as-if physics to mediate uh, selective pressures between apes, which is us. And it's the only place I know where there's a meaningful interaction possible between our two greatest ideas. So for me, the really interesting part of economics is that it is the one place where our greatest ideas might even touch and reproduce. The problem I have with the profession is, is that the fear of what could happen if we started to do real economics has locked out the kind of innovative spirit, which requires both much more detailed knowledge of selection as per Kahneman Tversky mm. and much greater understanding of mathematics. It's not that you guys have used too much mathematics, that you're not good enough and you're not advanced enough in mathematics. Lots of people have master's degrees. Very few have PhDs and very few of those are trained in the few subjects that would reveal markets to be truly geometric, which is a re revolution that happened um, between geometry and physics in the mid seventies or uh, for the standard model or the teens for Einstein's theory of relativity, you guys are next. And it's a question of people holding back the possibility for genuine innovation. So this is a place where I've been hoping that preference falsification would actually lead to the cascade effect that we began this podcast talking about. Well, this is, I'm, I'm, uh, 
not sure that actually don't think that this is going to happen through people who have who are currently falsifying their preferences who agree with the direction you go right and then they become disguising their preferences then they 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 become chairman of the major department then they suddenly uh suddenly redirect hiring and the department changes. I don't think it's going to happen that way. I think it will happen through the emergence of new departments and uh, smaller departments, lesser known departments that George Mason that decides. So George Mason is as as a particular particular direction, a, a particular direction, something. And there were some brilliant people, Buchanan, Tulloch, Vernon Smith joined them later on who, uh, had problems with the direction that economics was going with what it implied for right. political science, for political markets. And they were, they were pushed out of the mainstream of the profession. They just decided to form their own department. And they, they, of course, they all uh, congregated at uh, Virginia Polytechnic Institute. Then when uh, they decided, Virginia Polytechnic Institute decided crazily, I think, that they'd rather have a mainstream uh, uh, department. They just packed up and left and George Mason uh, jumped at the opportunity. So this can happen. That That is the model that I, that I think that there will be a group of people, some of them young, uh, in fact, probably many of them young, young enough that they still have, can energy, spend, creativity, spend, sure. energy and creativity and think of, uh, think of developing their ideas for several decades who, uh, who, uh, and there, there's some university with, with a, with a visionary president and some, uh, entrepreneur who, uh, the, gives a big grant to establish a new department and you get 10, 15 people collect somewhere. That is, I think the, uh, what will happen to shake up the, the economics, uh, the, uh, the profession and shake up in, in particular the theoretical yeah. core of the discipline. I think the empirical, parts of it, yeah. I think are just being shaken up well, daily sure. through the data coming in and through the, the very interesting, uh, uh, results and findings that are, uh, that are coming up as people are developing huge, well, new, sort of new, new, approaches uh, like, data sets. Like if you think about natural experiments, you happen to have a flood that you could never actually, uh, you know, ask for because it would kill people and it would destroy crops. But once you have such a thing, you look at the peculiar thing that happened as a controlled experiment. So I, I do see that there's some hope. The concern that I have is that the theory is going to get thrown over because it was uh, handed to the wrong group of theorists and that the right group of theorists is not going to be allowed in who could actually change the theory. Well, this is, this is in a sense, the George Mason people have, would have never been allowed in. I mean, right. Buchanan, uh, and his group, I mean, he did win a Nobel Prize. He did, he has, he's actually been more influential outside the United States in 
mainstream economics departments well, than, in the, than, than in the than in the United States. But there are uh, it did create a self sustaining group, right? And they've generated enough PhD students who have gone to departments, generally departments that are not in the top. 20, 30, maybe not, usually not, not in the top, top 50. And they're doing work that continues the Buchanan right. tradition. This is the way it may start, but just because the, that Buchanan's experiment didn't result in the quote unquote conquering of major departments doesn't right. mean that the next one that the that that takes on the core theory which right. Buchanan didn't do right Buchanan dealt with the political implications of political markets and he objected to to applying the competitive right uh economics model without some modifications to political markets, that there were certain inefficiencies that people were overlooking. This was his, his, yeah. his problem. No, I'm talking about so something he wasn't, much more he wasn't fundamental. He wasn't challenging the fundamentals. Right. And if you look at the, the, the basic economics that is taught at George Mason, it doesn't challenge the core no. ideas of the... Well, this is the thing that I the, want those of us who are trying to upend the core to yeah. actually go into open intellectual combat with the stalwarts who are defending the core from updating. And if the core is so fantastic, they should welcome it. I don't see that happening. Let's switch gears slightly. Yes. You grew up in one of my favorite places on earth. Uh, many people may not know this, I guess. I don't know if we mentioned it at the beginning, Turkey. And you grew up in a very interesting context that I was learning more about, which is that you happen to be very aligned with the sort of governing ethos of Turkey, which was unlike any other uh, Muslim majority country in the world, so far as I could tell. And you came to understand that the preferences of others were being falsified, even though your preferences were very much in line with the country. Given what we've been seeing with the ACT Party and Erdogan and the, all of the changes in Turkey, can you take us through a little bit of your evolution as a as an observer um, as to what exactly happened to change Turkey uh, so radically so quickly? So for the listeners, the watchers, perhaps uh, a minute or two on Turkish history Please. is would be uh, uh, useful. Uh, uh, Turkey was the center of the Ottoman Empire, which, where the, uh, law of the land was Islamic law. In the 19th century, a growing group of intellectuals started seeing Islam as the source of the empire's problems and the empire was falling apart and the problem turned into an existential issue uh as uh major components in in europe uh 
taken away and in World War One, uh, when the Empire's survival was at stake and the danger the Europeans would just colonize uh, what was left of the Empire uh, was becoming uh, more acute by the day. These intellectuals uh, were uh, many of them were in in the military. Uh, they fought for the empire and then for uh, Turkey's independence after Turkey was on the losing side in World War One. Very touch and go situation. And uh, the most of the most of what is modern day Turkey was occupied by Western powers, divided uh, among them. They fought to gain back these uh, territories, and they won. And they won the Turkey's War of Independence. And created an unbelievable opportunity that was actually seized. Exactly. It gave them, they, it made them heroes. And the leading hero was Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who had fought the British in Gallipoli, who had, who had put together a coalition to, uh, to, uh, defeat the Italians, the, the Greeks, the British, the French, the Russians. And he was a hero and he sensed he and the people around him. There were many other heroes, uh, uh around him sensed that they had a huge amount of political capital to modernize the country and to do something that was unthinkable until that point. We talk about how crazy these reforms were. Which was, one of them was to abrogate Islamic law and uh, replace Islamic law with secular laws legal systems borrowed from the West and adapted to Turkish uh, society, uh, abolish the caliphate uh, and send the, the caliph uh, packing and one by one introduce a series of reforms. Change the language? Change the, well, change the orthography, change the, the, the script, which the Arabic script to land and explicitly, openly make Westernization a goal of the society. Outlaw traditional dress. Outlaw traditional polygamy. Uh, dress, outlaw polygamy, give women the right to vote long before several other countries, including Switzerland, have given women their uh, right, uh, right to, uh, uh, to vote. Uh, rewrite history. And of course, this involved introducing their own myths. Now, uh, we could go on and on uh, just describing these, the, the reforms. It was, it was unthinkable, unthinkable cultural revolution. And of course, the, the economic institutions are changing at the same time. The political institutions are changing. 
the country's sense of identity, he replaces a religious identity with a national identity. So nationalism, so people are to call themselves Turks, not Muslims. And being a Turk takes precedent over being, at, uh, being a Muslim. Uh, uh, really, marriages have to be civil, involve civil ceremonies. Religious ceremonies have carried no legal weight at, at, at all. So the reason I, I'm so yeah, animated about yeah. this is this is almost like communistic level reforms, but in a, in a different idiom, in a, in a, in a different idiom and done by people who had, who were genuinely supported by large segments of society. Now this is not to say that there was no reaction. Now this is where we come to yeah. preference falsification and the bubble that I lived and so on. We'll, we'll, we'll get to this. So there are, of course, people who are illiterate, who uh, have no contact with the, with the West, who are very religious. They're suddenly being told by their leaders that uh, they don't have a religious identity. They're now Turks. What unites everybody is Turkishness, not uh, religion, that they and the Christian and Jewish minorities are equal, not only before the law, but also morally. And they're all, uh, uh, they're all, uh, uh, Turkish. They're to, uh, accept this. Uh, the education is completely secularized. Their, their religion is no longer being taught. That's if you learn religion in the family, that's fine. That's your business. Just don't, but the regime is telling you, don't make that public. And increasingly, this new regime is radicalizing itself. So this is building. Now you have a self-sustaining, self-reinforcing system of secularization where People are trying to outbid themselves, outbid each other in being secular in public. How, how much towards means, Western modernity? How much, how Western you can look in your dress, right. how Western you can be in the way you interpret history, how Western you can be in not being Muslim. So people start falsifying their preferences in the direction of, of being secular. So people who are actually personally religious turn religion into a private matter. Mm. They do not fast in public or at least in ways that are noticeable. So during Ramadan, but Islam allows you if you if you miss a day during Ramadan you can you can for for whatever reason because you're traveling you can you can substitute for it and it gives you a lot of freedom to do that so people would there were people and we find this through memoirs we we know about this through memoirs that were published posthumously okay. they couldn't express themselves they couldn't say this is happening this is this was happening among top level among some people who were among Ataturk's closest associates who were religious, but who could not have a religious persona. So while the West is cheering for Turkey's modernization, and lots of this is positive, 
we start sowing the sort of weird undercurrent where people who are genuinely religious are being repressed. People who are genuinely, genuinely religious are being repressed and people who are appearing religious in public are denied jobs, are denied promotion opportunities. This is not happening explicitly. There are no rules that in, in any government agency or in any major corporation that if you are religious and if you uh, are, are using prayer beads, you know, when you're sitting at the, at, at the meeting and giving people a sense that you're using that, uh, that, that you're religious, that this is going to hurt you. But it's well understood by everybody that if you want to advance in this society, now you have to appear irreligious. This is generating a lot of resentment. And there's also, there is, there is a void that the nationalist mythology creates that it's not satisfying to people. It doesn't, it, it emotionally, it doesn't resonate with some people who, who, want to want some religion so you have a lot of religious what we might call religious preference falsification and it's eventually turkey becomes after a period of uh secularist we can only call dictatorship or autocracy maybe benevolent uh dictatorship it eventually becomes a multi-party uh, democracy and as you would expect in a democracy, politicians, aspiring politicians, notice the existence of a constituency, of a privately religious constituency that would like to be freer in publicizing its religiosity and would like to avoid the discrimination they're, they're facing. So before we get to that, the one component I just want to check to see that my understanding is correct as an outsider is that a weird thing for Westerners to understand is, is that secularism and supposed modernity is guaranteed not by the democracy, but by the army. Yes. So it's the army, while this is happening, the army has a special position in Turkish society, and it owes that to its enormous victories following World War One, and to the fact that the that practically all the leading modernizers were trained in military schools. So the army is considered the protector. Uh, the, it, it, it's part of the checks and balances of, of the system that if the system goes off track, the military has a right to intervene, to step in and uh, uh, knock some heads, the politicians and uh, push out the people of cause trouble and restart the system. And this, in fact, so you do start getting political parties with the military in the background. You do start getting political parties that start catering to the needs and desires and visions of the pious people, the privately religious, some of them also publicly religious, but some of them publicly irreligious people. And these parties start 
advancing and they start uh, gradually altering the discourse and things that were unthinkable to say in during Ataturk's lifetime or the lifetime of the the next president uh, start being said publicly and gradually the support of these parties grow the military intervenes several times when it sees that the that secularism is being challenged uh uh too dangerously is uh, uh, from, from their perspective. They intervene for a few years. The secularists remain dominant, but then the force the, keeps coming back. The force keeps coming back. And every time it comes back in, it's even stronger. So we get through this, this process. We come to the Erdogan era Erdogan forms Erdogan with, with a number of other people, uh, belongs to a very, uh, what, what is even today a very extreme Islamist party that, uh, that's where his roots are, a, a party that favors an Islamic common market and, uh, uh and reducing contacts with the West dramatically, uh, a return to many old cultural forms, and so on. Uh, but Erdogan sense that they could never come to power uh, if they maintain those extreme positions. That, yes, they had a, a core constituency of 10, 12%, but they couldn't grow much beyond that. But if they advocated greater religious freedoms without threatening the secularists and others, that they could actually have a winning majority. So do some good and maybe even fool some secularists. And so he formed a new party, which is the AK party. AK uh, is the acronym. AK means white in Turkish. It was a very clever, uh, uh, a clever acronym, clever name for a party. The real name is Adalet ve Kalkama Partisi, Justice and Development Party. And the development was to uh, was to reassure the business elite that they were still committed to development and justice could mean many things to uh, different different groups, but to his core constituency, it meant we would get uh, religious freedoms. And so, when he first came to power, he gave the impression that he was going to expand the freedoms of the of the pious masses yes without taking away the freedoms of the seculars now this the, yeah yes at this point i became very mystified because i was watching it from here and there was this uh, phrase that was invariant in, in American news, the mildly Islamist Ak party. And I kept hearing that and I, I wanted to get the wax out of my ears. 
What do you mean mildly Islamist? So mildly Islamist was uh, it, it. It was never a good choice of terminology, right? But what they meant was that this was a party that had certain Islamist goals. It pursued those, but without really in 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 moderation and without doing damage to the rest of society. And this is precisely what Erdogan did. And it was, in fact, under his watch in his first few years as prime minister that Turkey formally applied to join the European Union. And this was something, the party he came from, the extreme party, this was one of their anathema. absolutely anathema to uh, right. to them. They wanted not only not to join the uh, the, uh, the common market, they wanted to reduce trade with them. They their their party platform said that they would do most of their trade with the uh, with the Arab world and the Muslim world. Now, what exactly they would be buying from the Arab world and where they would get their machinery and this and that. This was who knows who knows. This was one of those things that nobody uh, could be getting back to. Getting back to, you know, truncated public discourse within that milieu, you never asked this question, you know, how this was going to work out. You were, as a secular Turk from the Western part of the country that's very, very modern, did not see this sort of welling up of... Um, preference falsification, particularly concentrated in eastern, the, in the Anatolian region. I didn't. I didn't. Growing up, growing up in Istanbul, and growing up uh, in a family that had been uh, that was part of this Westernization movement. My paternal grandfather fought in the Ottoman army and then in the Turkish war of uh, independence. Uh, during that, that process, while he was taken uh, prisoner by the, uh, by the British and since spent some time as an officer, as a, as a British prisoner, came to appreciate the, uh, the strengths of Western society. He used that time to try to understand why the British were, had stronger armies than, uh, than the Turks tried to understand what it is that made them invent weapons that the Turks had not where several centuries before this wasn't, uh, the case. And he became, uh, became, Convinced that Ataturk and the people around him wanted to westernize Turkey, make Turkey, anchor Turkey in the West. They were 100% right. After he, uh, after the War of Independence, he resigned from the army, became a contractor, worked for the government for the rest of his life, supported the, supported Ataturk's party, the People's uh, Republican uh, uh, Party, was to the end of his life a committed westernizer, as was my father, as were all my close uh, relatives. I didn't, I grew up in a milieu where people didn't falsify their preferences. People were truthful. The, The people supported the government supported the government, supported the direction they were, of the country because they approved of this. And it was a, what they didn't know was that in part it was a bubble. 
What they didn't know was that it was a bubble and what they didn't appreciate, of course, they did appreciate that there were these, that there were, that there was resistance and there were in, during the decades from the 1920s to the 1970s, 80s, there had been minor rebellions uh, in uh, parts of Eastern Turkey. It was understood that there were people who objected to the country's direction, but it was also understood that they lived in poor parts of uh, the country. They represented, it was, the interpretation was they represent the past. As Turkey gets, gets more and more educated, they will fade into the past. The next generation will not uh, will not support them. So this is a transitory problem. So it's not that I didn't understand that there were people who objected to the, uh, uh, the objective direction of the country and that when they migrated to Istanbul, they brought some of those ideas with them. There were people in poor communities in Istanbul's and the, in the shanty towns who pretended when they worked for major corporations or worked for the post office or the government, right. they actually supported the, the country's direction, but that they actually didn't do it. This much I, I, I understood, but I, but I thought that this was, uh, this was a, a minor transitory phenomenon. This was not something deeply felt by large numbers of people that could actually change the trajectory of the country. This is something that I missed. And there's a lesson in this that for, if I may just for, for a moment, jump back to the United States earlier, jump back oh. to the United States in the bubbles that we have here in our left bu bubbles on the left and bubbles on, on the right. We have people who are talking to each other and just don't realize how many people there are who don't agree with them and who have very good reasons of their own for thinking differently well, about certain issues. Like issue. if you take it in the U.S., the Anatolia would be uh, analogized to the middle of the country in some The flyover sense. states. Yeah, so, well, I, I never uh, used that term because I just detested but yes so no no but it, but it but it is i mean it means something to to, to the coastal a, a elites and then you, the, coast, the, the coastal the, elites the, is how the the middle of the country demonizes the edges yeah, but yeah. but more than anything um you know it's not until you start seeing the headscarves uh coming out of a bmw that you realize that your picture is in some sense not an accurate one that people are, are quite well to do that they uh, are coming at this from a cultural perspective that you may not understand. And that, well, this is where the, where the whole where preference starts, starts coming in at various levels. Cause now the, the religious, the genuinely religious people start gaining political power. Right. And of course, with that political power comes government contracts, comes a reduction in the various regulations that prevented you from getting rich. So there are a lot of people who are, who are rich, who are culturally, who are culturally conservative that become rich. Right. 
And so then you start seeing, they start buying BMWs and they start, start, you know, and you start seeing people wearing headscarves and BMWs, you uh, driving at uh, BMWs, you start seeing increasingly elegant headscarves, whereas initially the party that, 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 uh, built up this, this movement, uh, it promoted a, a version of Islam that, uh, involved modesty. The cloth coat Republicans and, would be in it. Yeah, uh, modesty, and they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be flaunting their wealth and so on. Well, we get to a point gradually where, where those who get rich start spending the money on increasingly expensive cars, extremely uh, more and more expensive headscarves, and you get to the point where, uh, flash forward to the uh, to the present where you have a president who's living in the largest presidential palace in the world 1100 uh, 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 rooms he has something like 15 20 I forget the exact number private uh, uh, private uh, uh, planes flaunts his, his luxury all the all the uh, the uh, his uh uh, the lead members of the government and people close to him all drive cars or have cars driven for them by, you, by chauffeurs that are, that are, what's, what's that? Can we discuss this? Well, this is something that in Turkey is very difficult to discuss. If you discuss it, it can get you in, in uh, trouble. Anything involving the president's finances or how he spends his money or how uh, uh, his uh, consumption is over the top can get you in trouble. There are many journalists who are in jail at the moment for uh, uh, for saying this. But you get this. Now, here we get into another form of preference falsification within the AK Party movement. Now, these religious the the people who wanted to publicize do want wanted to advance religious freedoms we jumped over one phase which i should come back to now which is that erdogan as he's as he provides expands religious freedoms initially he doesn't take away any freedoms from the secularists he doesn't reduce their opportunities to drink if they want to uh, drink. He doesn't try to close down restaurants during Ramadan. If you're not religious and you want to have lunch during Ramadan, fine. That was Erdogan during his first few years. But during this time, he is gradually chipping away at the checks and balances at the system. And the thing ultimately that he needs to get rid of is this uh the uh, uh power of the military to essentially remove a government this was something that was in the constitution now i'm going to make a parallel here that yes. i wanted to see whether you're going to go yes. for or you won't yes in some ways i view the military in turkey as having played a role similar to the sense-making apparatus in our universities and our newspapers as the guarant the sort of meta guarantors of a stable democracy and that my serious concern about the united states is that we are headed down a path that we cannot imagine actually ends in literal dictatorship of, of some un, 
as yet unknown form, as we lose the thing that eroded that dictatorial impulse so that what I see is I see our newspapers, our universities, our political parties, this institutional class that was supposed to be um, quite honestly, somewhat elite and somewhat above the fray increasingly become this completely untrustworthy uh weakened version and where Erdogan was weakening the military, who was the guarantor of secularism, which was in the process of overreaching. Our situation is that our sense-making apparatus is weakening itself because its economics is starting to crumble. I think that there are parallels. It'll be, and we come back to this, let me maybe finish the, the, uh, the, the uh, Turkish case. So what Erdogan does, I think it's important for readers and watchers to, to understand this. He uh, disarms the secularists and makes many seculars and divides the secularists and peels off enough of them by making them feel that he will perfect Turkish democracy by getting rid of the role of the military, by pushing the military out of politics through a referendum, by actually changing the constitution. And you need to, you need to have the country vote on a new So having a military guaranteed democracy, a secular democracy was always a little bit of a kind of a dirty it, solution. It was, a, it was a dirty solution. It was something that didn't any, and, and Erdogan would always say this, this is not being Western. I mean, this was Erdogan yeah. being trying, trying to sell his, tried to try and remove this check on his power by appearing Western. And he convinced enough secular people, Genius. enough secular people. So yeah. the referendum passed by, I think, 50 and a half to 49 and a half or something. Uh. Got through this and the margin, the 5% margin that he needed came from secularists. And I have many friends who voted for him saying he is Erdogan. We hate to say this, but he is the one bringing true Western democracy. You cannot have a democracy. If you ever point, show me one European country where the military has the power that it has in, in Turkey. Yes, there are problems with Erdogan. We'll deal with that within democracy. And, uh, but let's get, this is our but opportunity. So this is in the U.S. context. Yes, yes. I find that both Trump and AOC yeah. are telling me some of the things that have an inexorable logic that no one will say. And I'm watching my friends peeled off in both directions towards Trump and AOC and I keep sort of saying, don't you see what's coming next in both of those situations? But there's something about this kind of appeal to a, it's almost kind of a self-hating nature of the secular that, um, or maybe that would be more in the case of AOC. And this is sort of appeal to, well, we'll, we'll just let Trump in to do enough mischief to shake things up. And I keep thinking that, that these entreaties are clearly going to go to super dangerous places, which I can't convince either side. To well, see. the parallel was the parallel here is that Erdogan was taking, removing one of the checks and balances in Turkish democracy and preventing it from, from going in any 
direction towards in any ideological direction toward dictatorship right he was removing he he removed this without putting in place something other else and balances. yeah perfectly said now so here's the parallel with the united states we have right now two extreme groups that hate each other that consider the other side inhuman and who are willing to suspend all sorts of democratic or all sorts of democratic checks and balances to defeat the other side. Trump is doing this and AOC like to do this as well. And there are various things that are happening in society that are the equivalent of of that and they're leading us toward a dictatorship of one kind or another well and there are very few people who are willing to say i can see this problem both of these uh are saying things that resonate with me both of them are presenting dangers and there's no place to go to say hey our problem is our is our extremists and our on our um exploitative entrepreneurs who are seeing the turmoil in the country and offering us these solutions. Because what I see is I see bravery and courage on the extremes and cowardice in the middle. And there is no kind of a courageous moderate perspective that says, what are we talking about giving up all of this great stuff that defined our country so quickly uh, at the first sign of trouble. Yes. And uh, yes, we don't have, and within American politics today, the hope is that within the democratic party, there will be some moderate uh, candidate who will say what you have just said and defend compromising with the other side and defend moderate solutions, admit openly the complexity of various issues and start a conversation on how we prioritize solving these, these problems. What's happening is that all of the candidates are afraid of crossing in the case of the democratic party, AOC and the people around her. And so they are not saying the things that could actually form a counter coalition. And the, the party is being driven to an extreme and the people at the extreme, including AOC and her, her squad, they are, are think of many of Trump supporters in the same way that ardent Trump supporters think of AOC. And there's and a terrible th- way in which I agree with both of their verdicts about the other yeah. um, in that the extremes of Trumpism and the extremes of this sort of, uh, you know, justice based um, thinking that throws out civil society I have to say that I understand the fear of closed borders, of open borders, of people just saying such dumb stuff with no adults anywhere in sight. And nobody pointing out the implications 
laying out all the implications of any of these, whether it's whether it's completely closed borders, having no immigration, or which, which, which or will having never a, happen, which or, which or totally open borders, which totally, can never happen, which, which can which can can never happen, and there are and most Americans believe in a policy package somewhere in between well, that so, involve that involves some immigration right with restrict with restrictions with certain certain uh, 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 rules uh, they're not for closed borders or open borders well, so, so I've been trying to figure out there's a game that gets played by demographers who are trying to help a candidate get elected, which is, can we identify a sector of the economy that nobody's found yet that can be swayed? So soccer moms was an example of one of these sort of Democrat, uh, demographic uh, discoveries. Another one was the exurb. So you had rural, you had suburban, but nobody noticed that before you got to, sorry, before you got to urban from uh, rural, there was the exurb in between rural and suburb, and, and that had a voting block. To me, one of the largest voting blocks, which is there for anybody, I talk about this all the time, and it's it's amazing to watch people falsify that it even exists. I call it xenophilic restrictionism. People who are fascinated by other cultures, they've got foreign friends, they're interested in having uh, immigrants as being a vital part of our society, but they're not coked up on this sort of beautiful, nonsensical dream at the base of the Statue of Liberty, which somehow has this mystical hold on immigration expansionism. Now, of course, immigration expansionism is a weapon for transfer of wealth among Americans. That is, if you can... Uh, selectively open borders and, and increase certain uh, groups share of the pie. George Borjas has showed yeah. uh, mechanisms by which you can transfer wealth. You claiming to take a tiny little bit of efficiency called a Harburger triangle. Yeah. But what you're really trying to do is transfer a giant amount of wealth, which we might call the Borjas rectangle yeah. from American labor to American capital. Now, you can't have that conversation about the misuse of immigration as a tool of transfer because our media will instantly set upon you and say, well, the only reason you're talking about restricting immigration is your hatred of foreigners and you can't disguise it from me. So you cannot be a xenophilic restriction restrictionist. So right. that, that cannot exist by definition. It cannot exist. Right. Of course, yes. because uh, the, and yes. so this, I introduced this thing called the four quadrant model. And the idea is, is that the media in particular enforces a narrative that all restrictionism 100% essentially is motivated by fear of foreigners. And then you get to fear of brown people and, and fear yeah. of people who are not like us or people with accents. And it is the largest, dumbest lie that it seems is, it to is be- It is a huge lie. And even you could minorities talk about brown people and, and black people. Many of them would be among the people hurt by open borders well, because they would lose, they would lose jobs. Well, the, you would get cheaper labor from. Well, this is of, my question. Doesn't anybody know any immigrants? Doesn't anybody know any Brown people? Well, the idea that, that um, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's like some white person's crazy idea of what restrictionism is about. It has to do with pushing out, labor supply curves. It's, it, it's, it's, this is, 
or diluting the vote. This should be part of the discussion, part of an intelligent discussion that we can have, and reasonable people could can agree can disagree on where what the optimal trade-off is. Right. And ultimately, reasonable people who disagree can come to a compromise. You're not going to get a hundred percent of what you're looking for. You're not going to get a hundred percent of what you're, we're going to come somewhere in the middle. We're going to have a national policy and that's the national policy. They can have some dynamism to it. Every four years, we can talk about it again. We can move the needle a little bit, depending on where we, we really, this is the way we can do it. But we have massive, massive preference falsification on this simply because people are afraid of being called xenophobes. That's, that's you, you wonder how crazy, and we have massive knowledge right. falsification, which goes along with this. People cannot, because you're afraid of being, of being put in the wrong box in terms of your preferences of whether you're a xenophile or a xenophobe, right. you don't, you don't say things that should be obvious to everybody that there are going to be major effects on the labor market that are not going to be distributed evenly. There are going to be some, there are going to be perhaps major owners of big factories are going to gain a lot from uh, the falling uh, wage rates. And a lot of people living in the inner cities are going to be hurt by, uh, uh, by this. This is something you cannot say because you'll be. No, I've already realized something. You you want to know how crazy this is. I used the phrase, doesn't anybody know any brown people? Doesn't anybody know any foreigners? I'm going to be excoriated for that because I didn't say, don't any white people know? It's like, even when I'm speaking glibly. Yes. Like the cost of any stupid aspect of phraseology is this ridiculous drumming up by the people who want us not to talk about it, which I think is for economic reasons. I think people are who are in control are terrified that they will come. Um, they will encounter the idea that in general, Americans are pro-immigration and wanted at lower levels. We're open to foreigners. We think it's a vibrant part of our society, but we're not stupid. We understand that if you have free healthcare for all, free education for all, you know, nearly limitless opportunity to cross board, you cannot do all of these things. We don't want our votes diluted. There's no ability to have the conversation. And so a lot of what the portal is about is we've got to break out of this enforced conversation of morons to some place where we can actually potentially get enough resolution to say, oh, here's what I'm really at about. I don't think we should be blocked to the, you know, the most dynamic people coming from overseas. We need some ability to admit refugees, look at the the people who've been, uh, you know, at death's door and we've saved and it's an, yeah. an important part of revitalizing the country. We have to be able to talk with specificity. And what I see is a media that doesn't have any interest in this long form kind of uh, interaction simply because it's trying to enforce low resolution speech. And that low resolution speech involves to put it in concrete terms. If you, want restrictions on immigration, you're for cages. Well, most Americans are not for caging children either. They, they, they're appalled by that. They would like 
more orderly forms of restrictions, more humane form of forms of restrictions, but we cannot get to that point if we cannot have, if reasonable people cannot have conversations, which are going to involve some disagreement, if they cannot have conversations that are probed by the media so that the underlying assumptions are identified. Without the gotchas. Without the gotchas, the underlying assumptions are uh, underlined, are identified. The trade-offs are brought out. The knowledge on, on which people's preferences are, are based. Those are scrutinized. There are many myths about what the composition of immigration is so that we actually are, we can, we can, we can get rid of some of our myths and start talking about these issues on the basis of facts Sound well, if, facts. So what are the we, things- we cannot we cannot do this if we can't speak freely. Well, the, so and and the thing that I don't understand is the university. So you're you're sitting there at Duke. You're part of this uh, archipelago of higher education. There's a major node on it. What the heck happened that our universities became? Places where you can't explore ideas, as opposed to the citadels in which one can. Or am well, I wrong is, about that? Well, this this is this is, has been a slow process, and I think it has to do with well-meaning. It started with well-meaning policies to help integrate groups that had been excluded been from insular. that. Had, uh, yeah. the, the, the universities had been insular. The universities had, had, ex, had explicitly excluded certain, certain groups, for example, African-Americans. And when you bring in groups that have been excluded from, uh, 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 uh the university system, uh, you bring them in, there are going to be some adjustment problems. And I think it was, I think there were some well-meaning people who wanted to help them, uh, help them adjust and started special, uh, special programs that, uh, and, and these involved, uh, what were called third world in the university that I went to college that I went to, it was called the third world center or there were African-American centers or something. So these centers, now these were again created to give these, uh, these groups, in this case, African-Americans uh, uh, a place where they could share their, their grievances, where they could, where they could talk each to talk to each other. They were not meant to be closed to others who wanted to, uh, uh communicate, uh, uh, with them, who wanted to help them, uh, them integrate. Gradually, they, they turned into activist, uh, uh, centers. They, uh, and they started pushing universities in the direction of, uh, uh, of, uh, making special efforts at hiring African American professors, bringing African Americans, minorities into the administration and so on. All this was also initially motivated by, uh, uh driven by well-meaning people that there were 
that you had uh, administrations and departments that were in fact generally racist that had histories of racism that had sure. over that had overlooked very talented african americans but it got to but it eventually starting from from uh from there it started taking on unrealistic dimensions. And one, I'll give you an example. I'm right now a professor at Duke. Duke was one of, one of the first universities, if not, if not the first university to, to have a plan put in its long-term plan or 10 year plan that every department in the university would have at least one African American professor on its uh, its faculty this was uh, a policy put in place well before i got there in the 1990s it was not feasible because in some professions there were very few african american professors who uh, could teach at uh, at a research universities and the competition for them because what was happening at Duke was happening at other universities as well. The competition for them was very fierce. So uh, given the numbers, some places, no matter how hard they tried, some places were not going to make their uh, make their targets. Well, this was then interpreted as not as uh, a consequence of low numbers and the overambitiousness of the uh, of the initial plan that something that could be accomplished in in uh, over a longer time period couldn't be accomplished say in in ten years instead of being interpreted in that manner it was attributed to racism. And it got to the point where the, the policies that were being proposed to, uh, to, uh, reduce the imbalances, the racial imbalance in the faculty and the student body. So on the policies that were being, being proposed at opposing them started putting you in danger. Sure. And that you could be, you could be attacked as racist. That shut down conversation. Now, this is one thing that I've given you one example because, uh, it's, it's the one that I've, that I've studied the struggle in universities over affirmative action. But it has happened in other areas as well. Other groups have used the same strategy to shut down discourse on cultural issues and to, uh, to, uh, to have universities build all sorts of new units designed to help particular identity constituencies. Right. Well, so 
I'm actually quite, quite interested and divided in my own mind about this. What I don't understand is why it is that we can't frame these problems in ways that contain both um, explanations about human bigotry, unfairness, uh, uh, misogyny, racism. Let's have that as a component. And then let's have non um oppression-based explanations. And let's try to figure out what percentage of things are due to both. And what everyone seems to do is that they either want to exclude one or the other from consideration so that we can't figure out the mixture. Now, I, I uh, you know, became a mathematician. Uh, I went through Penn, Harvard, MIT, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I think it's the case that at the time I was in each of those departments, there was not a single female full professor on the faculty. Now, I have no idea what that is. It's there's so many fine female mathematicians uh, in the world, and I could, I could, you know, certainly reel off uh, five or ten that everyone would agree uh, were first-rate mathematicians. Um, off the top of my head, but there is a wild imbalance in the field. And I am convinced that there's a component of this that has to do with men have erected mathematics in the way that men are most comfortable with because there have been so few women in the field. And I'm also reasonably convinced that there's some asymmetry, maybe not an intellectual ability, but certainly an interest in spending one's life uh, negotiating a world mostly of symbols. So, I have no idea how to call it, but I don't think that either component of that vector in two dimensions, which is oppression-based explanations and non-oppression-based explanations, I don't think either component would be zero. It's ultimately an empirical issue. One would imagine. And the way with, with these, with as with every empirical issue, we need to collect data and we need to approach the issues the way scientists but we're not allowed to set up the problem. But we're not allowed to set up the problem. We're not allowed to pose the question. And this is this is a big, big danger. This is where we become where the situation we find ourselves in is analogous to the situation of the Soviet bloc. Yeah. Where you could not ask the question of why East German Ladas were so, so inferior to West German Mercedes and various other West German cars, VWs, for example. Right. You could not ask this question. You could not, even after you started, you could start, you could pick up television stations in, in West Germany and see how incredibly different the lifestyles of workers there were that in the so-called workers paradise where the proletariat was in power in that society in East Germany, workers had a much lower standard of living than in West Germany. The Turks who had, who had been brought into West Germany were living much better than the, than the East German uh, uh, workers. You could not, well, for one thing, you could not point that out, but secondly, you could not ask the question, why? What is it? Where did we go wrong? It wasn't 
that the will wasn't there. Marx and Engels and the other theoreticians and Lenin had had certain ideas and a certain sense of how the society worked. And uh, I believe that they they sincerely passionately believed that, in fact, they could create the utopia they had in mind. They were there were certain very critical elements of human nature that they didn't appreciate. But if the the East Germans had been allowed to ask these questions and put these issues to empirical tests and so on, they would have come up with the answers and they could have actually made the transition without a revolution. Timur, I could talk to you forever. So I think what we're, we're going to do is we've been at this for a little while end with uh, a question that's been much on my mind having to do with, uh, in my case, wanting potentially to retake the White House and in in for the Democrats in an honorable way, which I don't think will happen. I'm not particularly close to the Democratic Party. In fact, it's been driving me crazy, but it is where I grew up. And then I would love to invite you back at any time you like to, to continue the discussion. But the theory that really has captivated me is how to... Um, figure out the appeal of Trump. And I, I have in part come up with this idea of the checksum theory of politics. Now a checksum uh, has to do with you're, you're receiving a binary, let's say as a computer program, and you want to know whether it's been corrupted. And so there's some very quick check without having to be able to see the program to know whether or not it's, the program has been, has been corrupted on its way to you. The three things that I've settled on, which allow me to know that the Democratic Party and its media organs are lying, have to do with a belief that immigration is more or less a pure positive and that anybody who wants it restricted uh, can only do so out of xenophobia, a belief that trade uh, and globalization is a simply positive force that should be expected to lift all boats. And the belief that there is zero connection between terror and Islam, no matter how many people cry Allahu Akbar at the end of a killing spree. Now, that is not to say that there's no aspect of white terrorism. That's not to say that there's no aspect of, of trade that is positive. Surely it is. And that's not to say uh, that immigration doesn't carry po positive benefits. I think we've extolled uh, several of them in the course of our conversation. But it's the simplicity and the violent ferocity with which these things are defended which have caused large numbers of Americans to say, I don't know what this is, but it's like invasion of the body snatchers. No one could possibly believe anything as simplistic, stupid, and as threatening as what you've created. And it's driving people in droves to embrace anyone who will say otherwise. Am I wrong? No, I think that there's, that there's a lot that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And I want to re-say what you said in a different way and explain the reasons that I think Trump came to power. Vast numbers of people, including diehard Trump supporters, think that he's not the type of person they'd like to have over for dinner. There's not the like, they're, they not, there's, he's not the type of person they would like to go into business with. He's not a trustworthy uh, uh, person. He's uh, uh, not a moral person. He's not for the 
millions of evangelicals who voted for him, not the not somebody who gets close to representing Christian values. But there's one thing that distinguishes Trump the way, said the Muslim the to the Jew politicians. What's, what's that? <laughs> said the Muslim yes. to the Jew. <laughs> there's one thing that that Trump demonstrated that no politician, Democratic or Republican, who came close to being a candidate, a characteristic that he had. And that is the, the ability to take on the sacred cows of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Okay. And it's important. And it's important. Yeah. And it's something that he, he demonstrated as soon as he announced his candidacy, he started insulting various groups of societies. Now, some of them are groups that do not have, like Muslims, like Hispanics, we called, he called all of them rapists, all 11 million Hispanic uh, immigrants. He said they're all rapists and did he? On. I didn't. Did he? I thought that was very well, early on. I, I, early I, on, I worry. I don't think that he did. He played around with a lot of things that could be parsed one way or the other. But so anyway, on. anyway, he 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 said some very awful things about the about immigrants. Maybe I've he was playing it, with fire. He was playing with fire. He certainly said awful things about Muslims. Now, their voting power, initially, those were the initial groups that he targeted. You could say maybe, maybe this is something that uh, a, a smart politician, a populist politician might do. They don't have much voting power. But then he started taking on groups, insulting groups and accusing groups of, of certain groups of doing horrible things, groups that had significant voting power. Some of them were primarily Democratic voting groups. So you could say, well, that makes sense because that's going to energize the Republican uh, uh, base. There are people in the Republican Party who don't like these other, other groups. That makes sense. But then he started insulting and demeaning and humiliating groups in the Republican Party, major groups in the Republican Party. And that included the one that sticks in my mind uh, is the veterans. He insulted John McCain, who was somebody who was an icon, not only for Republicans, including Republicans who didn't vote for him in the, when he ran for president in the primary, uh, but just also somebody highly respected by Democrats. And he accused uh, uh, McCain of being a failure because he had been, he'd gotten arrested and, and he preferred soldiers who didn't get arrested and so on. This is something that, insulted so many so many uh, uh, veterans now after this happened his poll numbers went up after he said this generally but also among republicans and even among veterans and this was just absolutely stunning to me and it to me it said People are looking for a game changer, and what they're looking for is somebody who can take on the vested interests in Washington and somebody who is who can be so open in criticizing uh, criticizing 
groups that are so important to the Republican coalition will be fearless against anyone. And if there's anyone who's going to shake up the system, it's going to be Trump. And I think that is one source of his, his strength. And I think that going forward, whether he's going to succeed in the next election is going to depend on whether people believe that he is in fact, that that attitude has generated something for them, whether he's actually, he's actually taken measures against immigrants that that for, for the people who voted for Trump for this reason, because he would shake up the system, whether this proves that he will stay on that path. And this is what the country needs, uh, what the country needs more of to move forward. You know, just listening to this, um, reminds me that the phrase out of control has two separate meanings. The Democrats see him as out of control in the sense of a destructive force that threatens every, everything around, uh, around him. The Republicans who, who support him and maybe even some Democrats who support him, um, or let's say it is Trump supporters and Trump detractors. Trump detractors see him as out of control in the sense that he's a danger to everything. Trump supporters see him as outside of control and therefore he can weirdly be trusted because clearly nothing is holding him back. He's not, he has no paymaster somewhere um, because nobody could act like this if they were part of the institutional makeup of the country. And I wonder if that's really what divides us. And this is, I think, what is dividing us right now. And the people who feel that he's just destroying so many things that are valuable to them are willing to uh, intensely hate him. And that hatred is now driving them toward politicians who are willing to suspend various civil liberties that are central to the American system or have been central to the American system because getting rid of Trump is more important than anything else. And, and Trump insofar as Trump is, is not that the, the, the sort of Trumpism will not be gone after Trump is no longer president insofar as these people who hate the establishment and hate the various vested interests insofar as they're there, they're going to continue to pose a, a problem politically. They're going to continue to be a political force somehow. And the Trump, the group that you've labeled the Trump detractors, or we might call them the Trump, Trump haters, many of them would like to suspend various liberties, various checks and balances to get rid of this clear and present danger. That is one way we can get to a dictatorship. Another way is, of course, allowing Trump to pursue some of his agenda, 
That's another way to twin paths to dictatorship. And again, we get back to this issue of the tremendous need that the society has yeah. for the people who are falsifying preferences in one way or another, who see the complexity of the issues to come out of the closet and to find a leader of their own who is going to have the charisma yeah. that is going to out-Trump Trump and out-AOC AOC. This is what we're lacking. Well, may we, may we find such a person. Inshallah. I hope so. Inshallah. <laughs> okay. Well, you've been through the portal uh, with Dr. Timur Karan of Duke University. Uh, thanks for listening or watching, and um, we'll see you next time. Thank you.